about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer, uh, Pastor Brian talked about the people of the Philippian church and their relationship with Paul. And he talked about the poverty that had come on them and yet the radical generosity that they had shared for believers in Jerusalem and for Paul personally. And Brian asked a question, how does a church become known for their generosity? Any church can have a moment of generosity, like rallying behind a building campaign or a new church plant or a mission project, and these can all be good things. But to be a church that is known for generosity, that's different. You simply can't rally people or guilt them into that. No, there's something different about the Philippian church, about the way that they saw and understood the world itself. And this is the way that Jesus saw the world. Tyler read for us Jesus' words from Luke 12 about not worrying. Now, if you're a kid here, there are uh, coloring sheets that were provided that have uh, a little bit of an image from the text that Tyler read for us this morning. Kids, do you remember when we feel anxious, what are the two things that Jesus told us to look at? Anyone? What did Jesus tell us to look at so that we're not anxious? Yes. Uh-huh, the birds. Uh-huh. And what else? There was one other thing Jesus told us to look at. There's a bunch of them blooming all around us this time of year. Yeah, lilies, that's right. The birds and the flowers, the ravens and the lilies, these are the things that we can look at to be reminded of God's provision. Now, I chose this recording of Jesus' words in Luke rather than the more familiar passage in Matthew 6 because Luke offers a couple subtle variations. Uh, first, Luke precedes this passage with the parable of the rich fool, a story of a man who spent his whole life saving up for himself only to die on the very night that he finished his preparation. And Jesus concludes, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, you almost certainly have a heading in your Bible that divides that story from the next one, um, but those headers aren't original to Luke's writing. So as we move from verse 21 to 22 in that passage, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. In other words, Jesus' words about not being anxious are an application of this parable about the rich fool. And similarly, when we get to the end of this section, we hear these familiar words. Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. But then Jesus adds something that isn't found in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
In these verses, Jesus gives us an application not only to this section, but to the previous section about the rich fool. He says that we should sell our possessions and give them away, and that by so doing, invest in a treasure that does not fail. So I want to ask a few questions about this passage today, and the answers to those questions will take us all across the Bible. Here are three questions that I'm interested in answering today. According to this passage, number one, how did Jesus see the world? How did Jesus see the world? Number two, why don't we see the world this way? And number three, what will God do about it? So let's consider that first question together. According to this passage, how does Jesus see the world? It's pretty plain from this passage that Jesus sees the world as a place of abundance. Look at the lilies. They don't have to toil or spin, yet even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. Look at the ravens. They don't store food in barns, yet God provides with them with everything that they need. So he will also provide you everything that you need. Now, I'm sure that this struck many of Jesus' followers as odd. There are a lot of reasons that Jesus should not view the world as a place of abundance. He grew up as part of a conquered people, the Jews, under the iron fist of Rome. The early chapters in Luke seem to say that Jesus' family wasn't rich. When they dedicate him, instead of offering a lamb, they offer two doves. On top of this, Jesus was a traveling preacher, which means he relied continually on the goodwill of others. A scribe once asked to follow Jesus, and Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So how is it that in a world of scarcity, Jesus saw abundance? Now, you could say Jesus sees the world that way because he's God, and you would be correct. But I wonder, is Jesus telling us something that we couldn't have known otherwise? Or is he maybe telling us something very old that scripture itself tells us? This is usually the part of the message where I would invite us to turn back to Genesis 1, but instead I'd like you to recall our Old Testament reading from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm. I didn't know that you were teaching on it next week, John, so that's really, that's really great. You should come back and hear John just meditate on this psalm because it's fantastic. It's a psalm that invites us to look at the world around us through the lens of Genesis 1. Parts of the psalm talk about what God did back then when he created the world, and parts of the psalm talk about what God is still doing through creation. Verse 10, it says, you make springs gush forth into the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And jumping to verse 27, it says, "All These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. 
So does the writer of Psalm 104 see the world as a place of abundance or a place of scarcity? So, so much abundance. And this is how Jesus viewed the world. He viewed God as a generous creator who made a world filled with abundance. And perhaps the greatest sign of God's abundance was his creation of humans. See, ancient Israel had other ancient neighbors who had their own stories about how the world came to be. And for many of them, there was a belief that humans were made to be slaves to the gods. Yet the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God does not need anything from us. Paul says in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So why would God make humans in the first place? Why make them in the image of God and put them into a lush garden and command them to be fruitful and multiply and give them dominion over the animals and gift them every tree in the garden for eating? Why do it all? Because that's who he is. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. So lest you think too highly of yourself, remember that you are a holy superfluous creature. Yet God created you out of the overabundance of his own love so that you would know and enjoy him. That's a beautiful portrait of God, isn't it? It's the portrait that allowed Jesus to see the world around him as a place of abundance rather than a place of scarcity. But this raises the question, if that's true, then why don't we see the world that way? If there really is so much abundance packed in, then why is scarcity such a prevalent mindset? According to some studies I read this week, somewhere around 75% of Americans worry about their financial situation. And almost 60% say that they feel that finances control their lives. Jesus lived in a world of scarcity and yet saw abundance, but it seems like many people today live in a world of abundance yet see only scarcity. Why is that? I think the answer can be found first in Genesis 3. You know the story. The snake says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now Eve knows as well as we do that the answer is no. The snake suggests that God forbade Adam and Eve to eat any tree in the garden as, as if it was all held back from them. The woman corrects the serpent. They can eat from all of the trees but one. But if they eat of that one, they will die. And the snake continues, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, first, the snake denies God's words that eating from the tree will actually lead to death. But then the serpent does something that's more subtle and far more insidious. 
He suggests a flaw in God's character. Think about it. God has given you everything. He's given you the trees, the plants, the animals, the garden. But this, this one thing God has held back from you. You think him to be a generous God, but if he's so generous, why would he keep this from you? The snake suggests that God is keeping something good from the humans. Perhaps he isn't as generous as you thought. But this is just a story from a long time ago, right? It's not like humans today ever think that maybe God is holding out on them. Like maybe the life you're living today isn't as good as it should be. Do you ever catch yourself with this thought? If I just had that, then I would be happy. That house, that job, that raise, that car, that woman, that man, that ordered house, that obedient child, that full night of sleep, that vacation, that new toy, that thing that I don't have. What we're told in Genesis 3 is that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, what I found interesting is that that phrase to be desired uses the same Hebrew word as the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. The word covet and the word desire used here are the same word. Now, what does that tell us? When something is desirable and is permitted or fairly yours, like all of the other trees of the garden, then it is a good thing to desire. But when our desires turn to that which has not been given to us, which is not ours to take, then the word you use to describe that desire is covet. In other words, before Eve ate the fruit, she desired to take something she knew was not hers to take. She coveted. Why don't we see the world as a place of abundance? Because we believe the serpent's lie that maybe God isn't as generous as we thought. Maybe he doesn't actually want the best for us. Maybe he's holding out on us. Maybe we need to take things into our own hands. And when we do that, when we take the knowledge of deciding what's good for us and bad for us into our own hands based on our own desires, the result is death. This is the tragic answer to the question, why don't we see the world like Jesus saw the world? We believe the lie God isn't as generous as he has revealed himself to be. And this lie plays out through the rest of the Bible. It's the lie at work when Cain murders Abel because he doesn't believe there's enough blessing to go around. Even after God tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's the lie at work in Ruth chapter 1 that Phil shared with us last week. That Naomi believed that God had done nothing good for her. It's the lie at work in stories in the New Testament, like the rich young ruler or Ananias and Sapphira, who believed that maybe following Jesus wasn't quite worth everything that they had. Maybe they needed to hold on to some of it, because maybe God didn't have enough to care for them. Seeing the lie that humans believe, seeing how we fall for the lie even today, the question arises, what will God do about it? 
Now, God would be fair and he would be just if he stopped being generous to created beings who continuously coveted for more. And truly, that is what we deserve. God's generosity withheld and his judgment unleashed. And it's true, God has judged his people in the past for their sin, and he will again judge, but not before he has given us everything. The portrait of God in the Bible is not of a God who withholds, but of one who gives and gives and gives again. In fact, the greatest, most undeserved gift that God could ever give us is himself. Perhaps you're familiar with these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nowhere in the Bible is the portrait of God as giver stronger than in Christ laying down his life for us. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated God's love for us at the highest possible scale. This love was given not because we deserved it, and we could never repay it. But more than just a gesture of sentimentalism, the cross did something. This generous gift accomplished something that would not have been accomplished otherwise. Listen to the language that Paul uses to describe what God has done in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We who were dead have received life, not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And God loves us not because of anything we've done or will do, but because of his own overabundant love. And catch this, he's not done Listen, so that, here's why God sent Christ to save us and then raised us with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about this? That God saved you from sin and death so that for all of eternity, he could show you how immeasurably more he loves you in Christ than you could ever imagine. What does that do to you? Like, does it stir a fire in your chest, a longing and a love for God? How does it change the way that you see the world? We have been given everything. For all eternity, we are going to be given immeasurably more. So, as Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do we become known as a church that is known for our generosity? It certainly isn't by being told, you need to be more generous. Instead, we become a church known for our generosity when we capture, or more accurately, are captured by God's great generosity toward us. I'd like to give you an example of this from the Bible about what it looks like when this happens. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is a prayer of David from 1 Chronicles 29. King David, toward the end of his life, have been, has been told that he cannot build a temple for God, but that his son Solomon can. So David opens up his personal treasury, all the riches from 40 years as being king, and effectively dedicates all of it to the Lord, including, get this, 3,000 talents of gold, is what scripture tells us. If you don't know what a talent is, it's about 75 pounds So 3,000 talents is the equivalent of about 225,000 pounds of gold, which if you took that in today's dollars would be worth something to the tune of $5 billion. David leads the people in giving generously towards the building of the temple, and all the people follow suit. So listen to this prayer that David offers to God after giving him this unimaginable fortune. Here's what David says. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. David was captured by God's generosity towards him, and it resulted in David joyfully giving all of it back. The people who saw David's generosity were also moved to be generous, and this resulted in them giving, as David said, freely and joyously. This is important. 
By definition, generosity is not a legalistic behavior. If you give because of pride or guilt or pressure, then your guilt cannot truly be called generous. Generosity has to do primarily with the heart, not the amount. David gave to God an unimaginable sum of wealth. Yet David can do that while also praying, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. And at the end of his prayers, Israel follows David's example. He prays, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you. David doesn't pray, direct their wallets toward you. He prays that their hearts would be right with God because David knows that that's what really matters. God doesn't need your money. He's doing just fine. But he earnestly, earnestly desires your heart. We give to God through our local church, not because we have to, but because we believe the words of the Lord Jesus who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we direct our earthly treasures toward heaven, our heart follows. True biblical giving at the heart of it is not transactional, but transformational. Giving does far more for the giver than it does for God. As we let go of one thing, we choose to grab hold of another. So what does this mean for you? There is no special offering. There is no pledge card. There is not any of this. But I want us to think about how we should live differently in the next seven days because of this message. And I have two thoughts for us. First, I hope that you can begin to see the world as a place of abundance and not a place of scarcity. It's true that we live in a fallen world and thorns and thistles cannot be avoided. But God gives us so much. And this applies to more than just money. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In preparation for this sermon, I discovered that sermon writing with two kids is much harder than with one. Wednesday night was supposed to be a night for focusing on this sermon, but instead, uh, my oldest had a really hard time falling asleep. And an hour and a half of my evening was eaten up just trying to help a three-year-old go to sleep. Now, I was a little bit anxious, both for me and for him, but I also had kind of a strange piece. Was this the right place for me to be, helping my son struggling to fall asleep? Absolutely. Did I think that because of this unexpected challenge that God couldn't give me the time I needed to finish this sermon? No. God's a generous God. And what it means for me to believe that in that moment was to be fully present with my son and trust that God would give me the words that I needed. Jesus invites us to look at the world and believe that there is enough. Enough food, enough clothes, enough money, enough time, enough patience, enough love. When you find yourself anxious with a challenge at your job, or you find yourself awake at night with a little one and wonder how you're going to get enough sleep to be a decent human being, remember, there is enough. 
God has given us more than enough. He has given us the kingdom. Second, I hope that your view of God as the overabundant giver causes you to want to become a generous giver too. And one of the ways that I hope that we can become more generous givers is by talking more openly with one another about these things. Now, I understand that every family situation is different with different challenges and different blessings, yet it seems odd to me that the church looks very much like the rest of the world in this area. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. One of the reasons we excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love is because we talk about these things with one another. Would we not also benefit from talking more openly with one another about how God is leading us to use our finances? Now, I'm not talking about publishing your monthly spending for everyone to see, but I am talking about transparent conversations with a few, perhaps from your community group or your growth group, where we can honestly wrestle together about how the Lord is using us to, lead, to use his finances for his kingdom. And we do all of this not because we're trying to follow a legalistic code, but because we earnestly desire to help one another look more like Jesus. As Paul said in Philippians 4, I don't seek the gift, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or to the Corinthian church, he urges them to take, to take part in the relief of the saints. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8.10, in this matter I give you my judgment, this benefits you. Generosity aligns our heart with God's heart. When we are generous, we bless others, but we also bless ourselves. We give because we believe the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is better to give than to receive. We give not because we have to, but because we want to become more like the great giver himself. And as a church, we are commanded by God and have covenanted with one another to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So let us practice generosity, but let us also not practice alone. May our fellowship grow deeper in grace and unity as we align our hearts to God and put our treasure in the right place, that we may reap dividends for all of eternity. May we find joy in generosity. So do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opening our eyes this morning to see your generosity. 
Thank you for creating a world that so clearly communicates your abundance despite our covetousness for more. As we look at your world and especially as we look at the cross, would you soften our hearts so that we would desire to be imitators of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us because of the joy that was set before him. May we give ourselves up for one another and especially for your bride, the church. We thank you for your words to us through Paul in Philippians 4, who said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for supplying all of our needs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.